Chapter 59 Gathering the Forces Al-Hashr In the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful. The name of this chapter is derived from its second verse. Hashr means gathering and rallying one's forces for war. It also is one of the names of the hereafter, the day of gathering. The Prophet and most of the converts moved to the town of Yathrib, which would later be renamed Medina, 13 years after the start of his mission. In reality, they fled Mecca to escape persecution and death. The two major Arab tribes in Yathrib were involved in a long-standing dispute and were looking for a way to establish peace and amity. Thinking that perhaps the Prophet could achieve this goal, they invited him to live among them and take charge of its affairs, in exchange for protecting and providing him with a safe haven. A segment of Yathrib population consisted of Jewish tribes who mainly lived on the surrounding mountain slopes, gravitated toward the polytheists in Mecca from the very early days. The Prophet, who was optimistic about forming an alliance with them, signed a treaty with their major tribes shortly after settling in Yathrib. Among its terms was that both communities would live together in peace and harmony and defend each other if attacked. However, not long afterward, the Jewish tribes violated their treaty obligations. The historical reason for the ensuing conflict remains unclear, but appears to have originated after the Meccans were defeated at Bedr. Later, Jewish elders went to meet with the Quraysh in hopes of finding a way to instigate a war between the Meccans and Muslims in Medina. It should be noted that the Jewish tribes were mostly wealthy, and their large number of warriors and array of armaments posed a potential threat to the new Muslim community. As this treachery was clearly contrary to their pact with the Prophet, he ordered that their castle be besieged. When the tribe surrendered a few days later, he ordered them to leave the region. They took their possessions, destroyed their military fortresses, and left. In a society comprised of ten Jewish tribes that had violated their pact and committed treason, such actions could not be overlooked. They could continue their sedition and make coalition with Quraysh to wage war against the Muslims and kill innocent people. In fact, the Prophet faced similar circumstances with two other Jewish tribes, which resulted in actual battles. This introduction provides a context that helps one understand the chapter. All that is in the heavens and earth glorifies Tasbih, God. He is the Almighty, Aziz, the Wise, Hakim. Glorify, Tasbih, is defined as an action 
done by everything in the universe to address faults and overcome shortcomings. All things have a role, a place, and a specific God-ordained function in the workshop of creation. He is Almighty, Aziz, having total control and power over the cosmos, and is incomparable in His might and wisdom. Most powerful people are corrupt and shed the blood of their opponents, but in contrast, God is also Hakim, because His power is coupled with His wisdom and temperance. The next verse gives an example to show that whatever exists serves that which is right and just. He it is who drove the unbelievers among the people of the Scripture out of their homes at the first gathering of both sides' forces. You never thought that they would go, for they expected that their strongholds would protect them from God. But God reached them from where they did not expect and cast terror into their hearts, so that they destroyed their houses with their own hands and those of the believers. So learn a lesson from this event, O you who have insights. As explained earlier, the Jews had shown that they could not be trusted, had rejected the Prophet and his message, and opposed that which is right and just. Thus, the Muslims did not expel the Jews who were the people of the Scripture, but rather those Jews who had betrayed God's gift of safety and security. The reason this verse attributes their expulsion to God is that He is the only one who has complete control and is the ultimate cause of all things. Everything takes place according to the forces He has established in the universe. God put fear into their hearts, and since this tribe had violated its promises, its members were already psychologically shaken. When the Jews realized they could not resist the Muslim siege, their decision to deny their fortress to the latter by destroying it further weakened their morale and brought about their own defeats. The verse calls upon those who have vision and wisdom to take heed. The purpose of this narration is not to instill pride in past victories, but to remind us that constantly remembering and trusting in God will cause our enemies, even those who are powerful and have strongholds and fortresses, to be conquered. If God had not decreed their banishment, He would certainly have punished them in this world. In the hereafter, they will face the punishment of the fire. Treachery will ultimately be punished. Even if that Jewish tribe had not left, its members would have had to face his punishment at some future point. This is just the punishment meted out in this world. The punishment of the hereafter is even worse. This is because 
they acted against God and his messenger. God is severe in punishment toward those who set themselves against him. They were punished for their enmity toward God and his prophets. This refers to their hatred of the truth and that which is right and just, disregard for living in peace with others and working in secret to harm other people's lives and property. Whoever does so should be aware that God is stern in retribution and punishment. The next verse refers to an event that transpired during this battle. The Muslims cut down a number of fruit-bearing palm trees in their fortress's vicinity. Why they did so is unclear, but the Islamic law of war prohibits harm to women and children, deserters, plantations, and the environment. As such, the verse is reminding Muslims that God willed this exception for this instance alone. Whatever you, believers, may have done to their palm trees, cutting them down or leaving them standing on their roots, was done by God's command so that he may disgrace those who defied him. Given that God willed this, this action did not violate Islam's dictates because it was governed by a higher rationale. You, believers, did not have to spur on your horses or your camels to defeat the enemy, and therefore God has turned over the gains to his messenger. God gives authority to his messengers over whoever he will. God has power over all things. Generally, the Muslims obtained spoils from their victory on the battlefield. The pagan Arabs customarily divided this material among the actual participants. However, after this battle, God commanded that all of it be given to the public treasury for distribution to the poor because there had been no fighting and thus no deaths or injuries. This established a principle that will be explained further below. There is no ownership and right to that which has been obtained without effort. Whatever gains God has turned over to his messenger from the inhabitants of the village belong to God, the messenger, the kinsfolk, the orphans, the needy, the traveler in need, so that they, the gains, do not circulate just among the rich. So accept whatever the messenger gives you and abstain from whatever he forbids you. Be mindful of God. God is severe in punishment. This does not mean that the spoils are to be divided equally among those mentioned here. Rather, it is enumerating those who may receive a share. The first is God which refers to activities in his cause, namely, spreading his word and engaging in whatever pertains to faith, for all such activities 
require a budget. The second is the messenger. It doesn't mention the Prophet by name. Rather, the person in charge of administering the society receives a share. In other words, anyone who is the administrator, his or her representatives, and the relevant civil servants, all of them have a specific share. In modern times, members of Congress and other elected political leaders receive supplementary funds so they can stay in contact with their constituents and travel to their districts. Third are the kinfolk. The leader of a state has to take care of his or her family and close relatives, as well as meet his or her living costs. Fourth are the orphans, a pre-modern society that had no welfare apparatus, but nevertheless had orphans had to find a way to cover the costs associated with raising them and thereby ensure their well-being. Fifth are the needy. This means someone who has diminished mobility, the elderly or the disabled who are unable to be active, in dire economic straits, and confined to their home. Sixth are stranded travelers. Given the historical context, this does not seem to refer to vacationers who have run out of money, for people in that era did not go on trips with their family. In fact, this apparently refers to those who immigrated from Mecca to Yathrib, who had left everything behind, or children who had become orphans because their guardian or guardians were martyred. The Quran uses Ibn Sabil, people of the cause, for those who have sacrificed and lost their property while defending the Islamic society and striving to achieve its goals. These are the people who should receive aid, so that they, the gains, do not circulate just among the rich. In this context, the verse signifies the circulation and distribution of wealth and opportunity. In order to ensure wealth circulation, it must be justly distributed among all members of a given society. Today, one of the problems of capitalist systems is the accumulation of great wealth by a few individuals and or families who number less than 1% of the country's population. When this group controls hundreds of billions of dollars, the majority cannot benefit from that wealth. The verse's final parts admonish the Muslims to obey the Prophet and accept what he gives them. They are not to haggle with him, but to obey God and his Prophet. Some part is due to the poor immigrants, those who were expelled from their homes and possessions, seeking God's grace and pleasure, and aiding God and his messenger. Such are indeed the sincere ones. This refers to the sixth group, those who have been forced out of their homes and seen their property seized, 
turned into empty-handed immigrants just because they have converted. These people have displayed their true belief in Islam via their decision to voluntarily sacrifice their life and property for it. And it shall be offered too unto the poor from among those who were already firmly established in their homes in Yathrib and firmly rooted in faith. Show love for those who migrated to them for refuge and harbor no desire in their hearts for what has been given to them. They give them preference over themselves, even if they are also poor. Those who are saved from their own soul's greed are truly successful. This verse refers to additional groups who deserve aid. The town's Muslims give a warm welcome and refuge to their Meccan co-religionists, along with various types of aid. Thus, they became known as the Ansar, those who assist, and are highly praised by the Quran. The Prophet declared a bond of brotherhood between the refugees and the Ansar, such that the latter gave half of their property and some of their personal belongings to the former. They shared their possessions without feeling a sense of loss, deprivation, or regret. The Ansar did so even though they themselves were poor. In any case, those who give something that they need to a refugee living in their home are truly making a sacrifice. Those who are saved from their own soul's greed are truly successful. We cannot be truly free unless we shed the shackles of being controlled by our wealth and property. Liberating oneself from the love of money requires practice and is an important condition of being victorious. Some who are quite wealthy seem to find it even harder to do so, even if it is just a fraction of what they possess. Of course, the degree of generosity must be based on logic and wisdom, for the Quran encourages neither reducing oneself to poverty nor refusing to share with others at all. Rather, a middle path should be chosen and generosity, like all things, should be in moderation. There is a share for those who came after them, saying, Our Lord, forgive us and our brethren who entered the faith before us and leave no malice in our hearts toward those who believe. O Lord, you are truly compassionate and merciful. This indicates the existence of a third group, the future generations. It may also mean members of other tribes who converted later on, as they are also considered the founders of Islam. This verse mentions a prayer for these trailblazers who helped establish the new society by their hard work and sacrifice. Therefore, later generations revere their forebears and pray for them. There is also a fourth group, those who portray themselves as Muslims 
but are just pretending. The hypocrites. Have you not seen, O prophet, the hypocrites saying to their disbelieving brothers among the people of the scripture, If you are expelled, we will surely leave with you. We would never listen to anyone who sought to harm you, and we shall certainly come to your aid if you are attacked. God bears witness that they are in fact liars. A group of Medina's inhabitants faced with the fact that the majority of their compatriots were now Muslim could no longer maintain their traditional belief system. As such, they decided to profess Islam without actually believing in it. Realizing that the situation had changed, they began making all kinds of deals with the Jews, assuring them that they would protect their interests. Such people wanted to create a certain status for themselves in the new society. The phrase, their brothers, indicates that these people were actually brothers to the unbelievers and traitors to the new society being established. This verse reveals that these people were lying, would not help the Jews if they were driven out, and would never stand with them on the battlefield. In short, their promises were empty. Indeed, if they are driven out, they will never leave with them, and if they are attacked, they will never help them. Even if they did come to their aid, they would soon turn tail and flee. In the end, they, the Jews, would have no help. Since the hypocrites only pursue their own worldly interests, they would never do anything to endanger their own lives or property. Fear for you, O believers, is more intense in their hearts than fear of God, because they are people devoid of understanding. They do not fear God, rather they fear you and your faith. If people have no fear of God in their heart, they will fear humans. Therefore, these two types of fear are inversely related. The less God-fearing people will have a greater fear of others, whereas the more God-fearing people will have a smaller fear of others. In other words, those who fear God have absolutely no fear of his enemies. Even united, they would never fight you, except from within fortified strongholds or behind high walls. There is much hostility between them. You think they are united, but their hearts are divided because they are people devoid of reason. They fear facing you on the battlefield because their prowess and apparent strength is fake. You may be impressed with their numbers, but they are divided in heart and mind. Their hearts have not been bonded and unified with the cement of faith, a tower that will collapse when the least bit of pressure is applied to it. Do not fear them, for they are empty inside. They are like those who, a short time before them, 
tasted the result of their conduct, and a painful punishment awaits them. This emptiness and brittle character stems from the refusal of such people to engage in serious thoughts. A number of hypocrites secretly negotiated with and agreed to help the enemies of Islam, but they lied and did not fulfill their promises. The hypocrites are like the example of Satan when he says to humanity, Do not believe, but when he disbelieves, Satan says, I disown you, for I fear God, the Lord of the worlds. The Quran says that humanity will blame Satan on the day of judgment and that the latter will retort, Blame yourself, not me. I only called on you, and you rushed headlong toward me and followed me. I had no power over you. Tempting is all that Satan does, which is exactly what the hypocrites mentioned here do. They instigate and tempt you to fight, promise to help you, but will not stand with you when the time comes. The end of both will be in the fire, there to remain. That is the reward of the evildoers. This is the punishment for oppression and injustice, not for having different beliefs, faiths, and denying the message that has been conveyed. O oh, you who believe, be mindful of God, and let every soul consider carefully what it sends ahead for tomorrow. Be mindful of God, for God is well aware of everything you do. This verse stresses that we should be aware of what we are doing, for we will be held responsible for our actions in the afterlife. It reminds us twice to be mindful of God, for only that and a strong, unbending will enable us to control ourselves and resist evil's temptations, wrath, lust, pride, envy, greed, and gluttony. Do not be like those who forget God, so that God causes them to forget their own souls. They are the rebellious ones. Those who forget God will forget themselves. This may appear counterintuitive, because if they forget God, it would appear they would become more mindful of themselves. However, this is the baser aspect of their being, as opposed to their true self-being. The soul breathed into all of us by God. This self forms our true nature and gives us the potential to become godlike, and the ability and capacity to absorb and maintain godly characteristics. We have been created as vessels to be filled with godly characteristics over the course of our lifetime. For example, if we forget that God is forgiving and generous, we may become unforgiving and stingy. If this true self is forgotten, we will undoubtedly busy ourselves with our being's baser aspect, which is nothing more than greed for money and competing for power 
and other such worldly things. Such people have strayed from God's path and corrupted their being. Not equal are the companions of the fire and the companions of paradise. The companions of paradise are the successful ones. To be the companion of an individual, a thing, or a thought means to be in line with and beholden to them. When people become of one mind and heart with someone or something, they become of one essence. Thus, those destined for hell and those who have strived for heaven do not share the same essence and should not be considered alike. The companions of paradise are victorious. The Quran uses this well-known term to metaphorically refer to our passing through this life, which is replete with all sorts of challenges, dangers, and satanic temptations on our way toward the afterlife. How can those who successfully traverse this perilous path be equated to those who have been the slaves of evil? We can become companions of paradise if we follow Quran's teachings. If we had sent down this Quran upon a mountain, you, O Prophet, would have seen it humbled and split apart in its awe of God. We offer people such parables so that they may reflect. Quran provides us with parables and examples to ponder upon and reflect about our faith to acquire a deeper understanding of its message. Even though this book would have crushed a mountain to find dust if it had been revealed to it, some of us ignore its teachings and thus are unmoved by it. The next three verses recount God's characteristics. He is God. There is no deity other than Him. It is He who knows what is hidden, as well as what is in the open. He is the most compassionate, the most merciful. The pronoun huwa, he, is repeated numerous times in the Quran. He is in our very being. But we have lost touch with him and have followed our whims and fantasies as well as the unjust. He is within the very inner recess of our existence, and our entire being exists because of him. He is the compassionate and the merciful. It should be noted here that the Quran uses the adjective Rahim, the most merciful, the specific form of God's forgiveness, twice as many times as the adjective Rahman, the most compassionate, which is his general forgiveness. He is God. There is no deity other than him. The controller, Al-Malik. The Holy One, Al-Quddus, the source of peace, As-Salam, the grantor of security, Al-Mu'min, the guardian over all, Al-Muhaymin, the Almighty, Al-Aziz, 
the compeller, al-jabbar, the truly great, al-mutakabbir. God is far above anything they consider to be his partner. These characteristics are in harmony. God is the king and the sovereign. Given that most kings are corrupt and oppressive, the Quran qualifies this by attributing another characteristic to God, the Holy One, so that people do not associate a king's vices with God. God is also Al-Quddus, the Immaculate and Absolutely Pure, free from any and all faults, and As-Salam, the One who gives peace. God is a pure king who does not oppress his subjects, is their source of peace and comfort, and Al-Mu'min, the one who gives safety and security to those who walk in his path. Given this latter fact, all others should be safe and secure from a Muslim's words and deeds. God is Al-Muhaymin, the overseer, and protector of all things, and Al-Aziz, the invincible superpower who is omnipotent and unrivaled in his power. Finally, he is Al-Jabbar, the compeller, and Al-Mutakabbir, the truly great or the superior. Jabbar literally means the repair and or rectification of something by someone who is able to do so. This may seem like bad traits. However, that is the case only if they are the traits of human beings. In reference to God, it is quite appropriate, for it means that He is the one who created the universe and thus imbues all of existence, which is virtuous and good, with His will. He has expressed Himself by way of being the compeller and creator. Unlike dictators, he has bestowed free will, liberty, and autonomy upon human beings so that they will choose their own path in life. The same can be said of superiority and pride, mutakabbir. Humans should not make the false claim that they are above and thus superior to others for they are no more than minute beings in the infinite expanse of God's creation. As this is the worst and ugliest trait for a human being to acquire. Even if we someday do gain knowledge of all that exists, we are no more than limited and weak creations of His. Therefore, only God can be truly great and superior and possess these characteristics. He is exalted and far above those of his subjects who obey and serve dictators instead of him. He is God, the Creator, Al-Khaliq, the Originator, Al-Bari, the Fashioner, Al-Musawwir. The best names belong to him. Everything in the heavens and earth glorifies him. He is the Almighty, the Wise. In the end, 
the chapter returns to God's creation and refers to God with the pronoun Hua, He. He is the one God who is Al-Bari'ah, the inventor without fault and mistake. And thus, whatever God creates is free from fault. In physical terms, we are his greatest invention because we are the most complex and complete of his earthly creations. God is Al-Musawwir, the fashioner, which means to create in different forms. This can be seen in the various phases of our own creation. This diversity of creation, which is particular to God, is not referring to the apparent forms of eyes and ears, but to the various stages of fetal development until we emerge as a fully formed human being. The best names belong to Him. This reality is exclusive to Him, and any beauty that exists in this world is from Him. If a flower is beautiful, if a perfume has an enchanting scent, if the moon is bewitching, if water is revitalizing, all of these goodness and beauty emanate from him. This chapter started and ended with the same phrase, with the difference that the word tasbih in the first verse is in the past tense to stress the absoluteness of this act by all of creation. However, this final verse uses it in its present tense to indicate its continuation and eternal nature.